Okay, so Illegitimate Scholar Live this week. I'm joined by uh, Kyle, who I don't know how to pronounce your last name, from In Liberty and Health. Oh. Um, so, Matovic. yeah. Matovic. Yeah, and In Liberty and Health is your show. It'll be linked down below. And uh, you want to just explain your show briefly? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, first of all, I appreciate you having me on. Um, you were just on my show a couple weeks ago, and I really, really enjoyed the chat. We've been uh, talking quite a bit. And, um, you know, I always enjoy talking to you. So well, I appreciate you having me on. But um, yeah, so I run the In Liberty and Health podcast and play guitar for a band called A Common Crown. Um, the podcast In Liberty Health, I talk about all things, you know, libertarian politics, foreign policy, um, cultural stuff, as well as like a lot of health science stuff. Um, I've done numerous podcasts just kind of reading through studies and stuff like that. And I've had some of the world's leading experts on hypertrophy, body recomposition, and tons of people who've just dug really, really deep into the literature on health sciences to uh, hopefully bring everybody um, good information so that way they can improve their lives. And same deal with the foreign policy stuff to arm people with, um, you know, the knowledge so that way they can, you know, go about their lives um, in the best way as possible. And that's kind of the goal of the podcast. And that's what I do. Hell yeah, brother. Hell yeah. Yeah. And I obviously, I mean... If you're, if you've been listening to my show for a while, you know exactly why me and Kyle get along. Cause I like that shit too. Um, yeah. So, so this is illegitimate scholar live. It's the week of, uh, July 6th. We've had some weird stuff going on this week. Lots of judicial branch type stuff. And I have a couple of things we're going to talk about today. Um, so I'm, so let's start, um, by responding to Craig's question in the comment, which is. All right, who left Coke at the White House? And okay, I would like to talk about who left Coke at the White House because I am in the minority opinion that I do not think that this was Hunter Biden. And the reason is that there are so many people at the White House that are doing Coke, I guarantee it. And at the same time, I guarantee you they have a handler on him that's going to like grab his stuff. I mean, he's the guy that left a laptop with like the worst incriminating pictures I've ever seen in my entire life, some of which you can't even find because I mean, you shouldn't even look for them because they're like with minors. Like you can't search right. for child porn, even if it's like for a political thing. I mean, mm -hmm. look, if you're going to do that, that's on you. I am not going to do that. I haven't done that. I have seen some of the pictures that are like, you know, not with children. Um, and I've heard that maybe there are some with children. I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's hard to tell what's real and what's fake, but um, I think a lot of people are doing coke in the White House, and I think that the only reason that I don't think it's it's could be Hunter Biden's is because it's like right there, like it's it's or it's because they would have someone watch. They have to have someone watch. They have a huge staff. Why would they not? Um, but yeah, what do you think, Kyle? Uh, I'm honestly kind of surprised they didn't kind of try to whip this up into some kind of like another anthrax um scare. Because um, that's always, I feel like that's always just like one step away, we're one psyop away from another uh, sweeping mandate of some sort that's going to crack down on liberties or just be used to gin people up for some reason or another. And I think this is something that a lot of people kind of lost touch on. Like um, when everyone's talking about the died suddenly stuff, um, I, I think they tend to think that the media is just doing this to show oh look somebody died how unfortunate but they know you guys are going to go crazy on both sides they know that everybody's be whipped up into a frenzy and everybody's going to fight over it and you're all going to click on their news articles and you're all going to share it you everybody's getting played like a fiddle and this i don't I really don't think it's any different now as to who's doing cocaine in the white house i'm going to be honest i have no idea if you told me biden was sorting lines off the uh, back of the toilet seat i would be kind of impressed but you know 
he needs some kind of pick me up and maybe that's his pick me up. Maybe it's Kamala Harris, but I just saw a video of her speaking and like, man, she's just so dislikable. I know. <laughs> it's so bad. She's just like, like I saw her making this weird comment. Like she said this thing that was like, you exist. You exist in the, in, in the context of all of which you were born into. And like, you're, I heard that nail this Kamala Harris impression. It's because I, I feel I agree with her. Like, that's how I view the world. But I'm a weird, like, pothead who sits in my clicking house and, like, reads weird books all day. I shouldn't be the vice president. Nobody who talks, like, weirded shit like me should mm -hmm. be the vice president. It's crazy. Like, the fact that I understood what she was talking about means she's not qualified for that position. Um, <laughs> Like, she was, that was some spiritual-ass shit, man. I mean, like, she must have just got off a DMT hit or something. We'll just, we'll just go with it. Okay, so DeSantis unveils an aggressive immigration and border security policy that largely mirrors Trump's. We can already see Trump talking about this article. Little Ron DeSanctimonious Meatball Ron, he copied my border <laughs> policy to a T. He said, if, if everybody was here, they'd be crying because of it. You know, he's, he's very DeSanctimonious. Something yes, like that. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So here, here's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm just going to shut our cameras off. Is that okay? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So actually, uh, there's probably a way for me to shut your camera off, but I don't know how. So can you shut your camera off? Yeah. Let me camera off. There we go. Calvin says the hands. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So hopefully that'll be better. Um, Someone said something about uh, Donald Trump holding an invisible accordion. And ever since I heard that, I could not like unsee it. <laughs> yeah, dude, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, he's, he's a ridiculous person, but he's a performer. He's, he's funny at the very least. Um, he's a brand for sure. And that's, that's his whole thing. Yeah. And that's what I appreciate about him. Yeah. Okay. Let me, I'm going to pull up one thing and we're going to get into it. And, um, Okay, so DeSantis unveils an aggressive immigration and border security pol policy that largely mirrors Trump. So um, this is what's going on. DeSantis is coming out with this. Um, Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis promised to end birthright citizenship. Uh, that's kind of crazy, which is why I brought this up, because I think that like ending birthright citizenship, I mean, that's a massive shift in how we're like in, in how we're dealing with how we're creating Americans, you know, and that's in. I mean, that one kind of freaks me out. I don't think he's actually going to be able to do that. I don't think, but it's like, it's, it shows the extremeness that the rhetoric has gone because like we've had birthright citizenship for ever. I think it's in like the original draft of the constitution. I, I don't think he's really going to do that. Is what I'm saying, but regardless, um, but he, I don't know what exorciating means, but from the context, um, you know, he's talking about an immigration invasion. And I think like, with us in the Northeast where I live and as well as like more neoliberal places, you don't really deal with the negatives of immigration as much. And it's easier for you to say, oh, well, who cares? It's like, it's, it's a humanitarian thing, but you know, it's more complicated than that. And when I'm thinking about politics, I'm thinking about like, you know, maybe, maybe it is just right to let in as many people as, po as possible. And I, excuse me, I'm not against like, immigration in general i mean I, I think we should have a lot of it but it's gone it, it's gone to a level where i think is maybe unsustainable um and it's gone up in the last few years since biden took back office and 
And I actually like Trump's border stuff was okay in certain ways in the sense that deportations went down under his, uh, his watch under Trump's administration, deportations went way down from Obama, who sometimes called the deporter in chief, but mm -hmm. they also lowered the amount of people actually coming into the country. And, you know, I, regardless of what your politics are, I think that most people agree. I don't know if you do Kyle and you, you can share your point, but sure. you know, I don't, I, I'm not necessarily the most open on like complete total immigration. Like I'm, I'm not as far as the Democrats on immigration, but I do think that it's not cool to deport people. I mean, that there, there's some problems with there. So I think that the better way is, you know, trying to limit those deportations to, to at, at least law abiding people. Like, you know, if you're, if you're catching felonies up here, then like, by all means, I'm, you gotta get deported, but like, I don't, I don't like the idea of just, you know, splitting up families. It's just a bad look. It doesn't like it, it makes, it's, it's not a good thing. There's, there's other considerations, but it's like, this stuff is going to work. Like this is going to be an appeal that continues for a lot of people. As long as there is like completely just massive immigration that it's just going to continue to be a, a, a problem for people and it's going to continue to affect the way that people vote and no matter how you feel about it that's like that's what's going on so yeah do you have anything to say about this yeah so um my opinion on immigration is that um i think so long as people are assimilating to the culture which i know that's pretty ambiguous yeah. um, i think generally you're going to be okay as in like people who come over here and i, I think the data bears this out that immigrants typically do take less welfare and a lot of them do come here to work. And I think that's reasonable and logical because if you're leaving a country, um, you're usually either leaving for opportunity or you're leaving because your country's getting destroyed, which I think that's, you know, those are the, probably the two biggest reasons why people come here. Um, the birthright yeah. citizenship, man, that is like, DeSantis is admirable in a lot of regards because like I look at DeSantis and Trump in regards like where DeSantis falls short, Trump is good and where Trump fall short DeSantis is good so like DeSantis is very decisive and he's not afraid to punch back and he's not afraid to use the power of the government against his enemies which is admirable for kind of like his cause because you haven't seen a Republican govern like DeSantis does um but that being said he's gonna lose a lot of the moderates because of his hard you know let's say right-wing stances by the way that we're defining it like 2023 yeah where like very very strict immigration very very pro-life he uh, is very very pro-death penalty he is very kind of like right wing and then even like very pro war in a lot of regards. And he's yeah. really the only one that hasn't come out and said anything like strong about the Ukrainian conflict. Um, you could, I mean, it's pretty obvious where he stands on most other issues. He was terrible in the Middle East. Um, he's awful on China. He's really, really bad in Iran. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, he's also said um, that Putin's a war criminal and he should be held to account, which I don't think yeah. he disputes that uh, Putin's a war criminal, but. Um, you know, the idea that the U.S. is going to hold him to account, well, you know, where does that start and where does that end? Um, DeSantis, I think, will run a good campaign. I think a lot of people are kind of throwing him out pretty early because of um, a little bit of, like, faulty footing. But um, as a Republican, I like him for who he is. I don't like him from my libertarian viewpoint at all because I right. think that he'll be, like, the next Obama. Um, and uh, yeah. Much like you, I don't think he'll... I don't think a lot of this um, immigration and border security stuff will really pass. I think it'll get some support, but I don't think it's going to be anywhere near enough to really, um, you know, sign into law or anything like that. 
I mean, th- this is what DeSantis has been doing. He's been he's been a war hawk on Iran. He's been a war hawk on China. Mm-hmm. He's been a war hawk in all these places, making these terrible foreign policy decisions that like that are completely go against libertarianism to the point where I, I like I used to like DeSantis. I don't anymore learning about all this stuff overseas. Whereas mm-hmm. like the thing I liked the most about Trump was his foreign policy, the amount that he didn't want to interfere. And um, I have a little bit more to say about that a little bit later, I think. But sure. but ultimately, like DeSantis is, uh, you know, I fully agree with you on, on everything about DeSantis. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's it, the thing. OK, so Craig and Calvin are in the comments talking about America. Craig says Americans are not having as many children as before. Lots of jobs available. We need to increase our population. It is really aging. And I think he's right. Calvin says sounding pretty good. OK, um, rising cost of living, I think, is making it hard for Americans to have kids right now. Yeah. So, I re- okay. I really like this point. And I'm sorry to interrupt, but this no, no, go has ahead. been um, something I've been listening to quite a bit. Um, there's a guy named Peter Zihan, and I don't agree with him on everything, but his analysis on China is really, really good. And I never like thought about this until he kind of laid it out this way. So I'll try yeah. to lay it out the best that I can. I, I've um, read the book, kind- by the way. Go ahead. Uh, okay. Yeah, it's a great I've, I've book. I've never book, read his I... book. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like as countries get more and more industrial, they no longer need a whole bunch of kids to kind of like take care of the farm. And people actually have less and less kids as they kind of move into cities because now kids have become a little bit more of like a luxury item. And that's not to like downplay kids or their agency or anything like that. But, um, you know, you just have other things that kind of take priority. And then also your cost of living starts to go up because, you know, you you got a car, you got a job that you have to drive for, you want to go on vacation, stuff like that. So, you know, you do see that people tend to have kids later. They have less kids and they have, like I said, those kids later. And families aren't quite as closely knit together. And, you know, I think a lot of that's to the detriment of a, of a society. But, you know, this is kind of what we have to figure out how we're going to, you know, live moving forward. Because I don't think, you know, we're ever going to go back to the 1950s of barefoot and pregnant. You and I talked about this a little bit on my show. But, yeah, I, I just don't think the uh, demographic situation is going to get that much better until there's like a drastic shift in culture and a uh, draft or you know, until we kind of figure out how to navigate this new global sexual marketplace that we've put ourselves in. Right. Yeah. And and I think that like th- this is a lot of this is blamed on like on, you know, moving it like, like all of what you said. And those are definitely factors. But I think that like mm-hmm. with I with capitalism and when I'm talking about capitalism, I'm talking about it more from like a cultural sense of like how. Because the technology that you have is connected to the culture. It, it, it strongly affects it. So, like, when with a capitalist culture, because everything is commodified to the point, like, things just get more and more about, like, dollars and money and other things in society are not concentrated on as much. And and I think what, what Calvin's saying here, where, like, the rising cost of living is really making it hard for Americans to have kids. And, like, yeah, he's right. And that is a problem. So, like... To me, I see this thing of like capitalism um, has caused, and when I say capitalism, I'm talking about the big cultural thing again. It's caused the, um, it's caused immigration to come in because this started on, under Clinton, right? So, so Clinton opened up the borders. We had NAFTA, all this free trade. You know, it benefits capitalism to have, um, to have a bunch of immigrants coming in, which causes its, its own problems. Not that we shouldn't have some immigrants, but like, you know, we have this problem where like, hey, our own people aren't having kids, so we need to bring in immigrants. But like both of these things are problems that are stemming from the same source, like the large amount of immigrants coming in helps the ruling class the most that benefits from more lower class and middle class um, 
labor being imported from other countries. And and like what I'm describing right now is a Marxist idea, like a very original from Marxist idea of the effect of um, immigration on uh, on workers in a, in a place. And this is something that happened a lot in the 90s. But we've come to the point with a global world where a lot of the, a lot of it is just outsourcing and like outsourcing does it already, especially with the Internet. And then there's this other addition of actual physical relocation. And and honestly, like it, it doesn't there's so many things. I mean, we could talk about this one thing for the entire time. So I kind of got to mm -hmm. cut it off now so we can yeah, <laughs> talk about good. these other things. But <laughs> yeah, um, so kids as a luxury is a very interesting point. Great way to describe it. I, I agree with Calvin, because I, I think the way that you said that they were a luxury item is kind of like, like they're a luxury item in the, in like the economic sense, because like they used to be something that you just had to have number one, because they just didn't have as great birth control and everything, but also like having the kids wasn't an economic burden to you because of more subsistence right. farmers and them actually providing labor rather than taking it away and lower costs of childcare when like, you know, the, the average parents in the 1800s by today's standards would be taken into DCF. The average 90% mm -hmm. of them would be just because of the norms at the time. Um, yeah. And we have bagged ourselves into a corner, but every country that adopts the Western way of life, every country that, that adopts this, um, capitalism. And when I say capitalism, I'm talking about the modern form of capitalism. I'm not attacking yeah. the free market. Um, I would never do that because libertarians would wring my neck, but, um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm talking about like, like, you know, Reaganomics. Let, I, let's not even call it capitalism. Let's call it Reaganomics. Once you adopt Reaganomics, and, and in line with that is adopting the Western diet in a lot of ways, and you know all about the Western diet, Yeah, that you adopt a situation where your population is not going to be sustainable for very long. I mean, this is what happened in South Korea and Japan, where they're having the worst. These are the two countries in East Asia that have adopted the... Um, the Western diet the most, the Western uh, way of life the most. Um, and you have other countries as well, Central America. I mean, the U.S. and Canada, obviously, Europe, they're, they're all having these massive problems. So uh, let's talk about Israel, as we tend to do here. We usually talk about Israel every week. There's been a lot of stuff going on there. So we've been talking about mm -hmm. Israel and Palestine. So an Israeli soldier, an Israeli soldier, let me pull my notes back up. Um, an Israeli soldier was killed in a settlement attack and a gunman was shot dead. So Hamas, which is the militant wing of, uh, the Palestinians, uh, says attack close to the illegal Kedumim settlement in occupied West Bank was in response to Israel's Janine raid. So, so this raid, uh, was... Yeah, so un unfortunately a, an Israeli soldier was killed. Hamas took credit for the attack. So this massacre in Janine, the Palestinian Ministry of Health said 12 Palestinians, including three children, gosh, awful, were killed in the Israeli army's aerial and ground operation in the densely populated uh, Janine refugee camp. One Israeli soldier was, was also killed. And at least 120 Palestinians were wounded, uh, including 20 who remain in critical condition. Around 3,000 were fo forced to flee their home. So, I mean, like, look, I, I, this sucks all around. It's absolutely terrible. I mean, look at this kid right here. That's a child. You see this guy, just this Israeli soldier here who unfortunately might, committing, might be committing crimes against humanity. Mm -hmm. um, 
but like it's an escalation of violence in this place and it's while you have this situation where palestinians are being killed at a much higher rate of course you also have israelis being killed both of them innocent people it it reminds me of the troubles in a lot of way not not in every way but you know the united nations chief has accused israel of using disproportionate force against palestinian groups in reference to the assault on janine so i mean of course they're using disproportionate force that's it's what they do um and there's never anything that actually happens because of it so they don't they don't actually stop it um and you know it it doesn't feel to me like this is something that is like it doesn't feel like they actually want to stop the violence because there's an escalation every time. They know that when they do something like kill 12 people, including three children, that there's going to be a retaliatory attack. And over time, this violence has helped Israel to continue to take Palestinian land and to, to demonize the Palestinian people. Um, yeah, so I'm on my road to getting kicked off YouTube. Now, what do you think, Kyle? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you kind of see this pretty much every single time that there's an issue between uh, Israel and Palestine, um, that the Israelis really just do use overwhelming force on the Palestinians. I was just listening to uh, Media Roots Radio where uh, Abby was describing her trip over to Palestine with, uh, I think, Dan Cohen, and just there are just checkpoints after checkpoints after checkpoints for the uh, Palestinians. And, I mean, they're the way that the... IDF really treats the Palestinians as brutal. I mean, they just slaughter people indiscriminately. It's it's a tragedy. And, um, you know, this is a very, very complicated, complex issue that, um, you know, there's a lot of layers to it. And when you start talking about Israel, this is also a country that has their own nuclear program. And they're one of the only countries in the world that you're not allowed to talk about or like acknowledge their nukes. Like when um, people ask the State Department, about Israel's nuclear program, um, they pretty much deny that they know anything about it and say like, oh, well, we don't talk to them about it. But, you know, we have all these other countries that are supposed to be under their, uh, like, the nuclear umbrella. So you can see just we make a lot of exceptions as the U.S. Um, for Israel for all the bad stuff they do. Like, they murdered that journalist, um, Shalene Abu Eklat, her name was, something to that degree. Um, they, you know, completely, I think they shot her in the neck. And she's wearing a press vest and, um, you know, there's no accountability for them. And the uh, Biden regime, you know, has pretty much continued on the same line as the last couple of presidents where they said, yeah, we're, we're not going to hold Israel to account for any of their human rights abuses. Um, you know, so, you know, this is just kind of par for the course where um, you see one soldier dead for about 120 Palestinians. And I think yeah, I pulled up the antiwar.com article about this because I remember listening to this, um, listening to Dave talk about this story this yeah. morning. Dave DeCamp, uh, for everyone listening. Yes. Dave DeCamp, yes, antiwar.com, great place. Mm -hmm. He's absolutely, yeah, I listen to his show every single morning. But yeah, three of the Palestinians killed were minors. So, I mean, like, do you really think Palestinian children are a threat to the IDF? I mean, this is probably one of the best well-armed militaries in the entire world. Right. They're right. killing children. Yeah, and, and, and like the way they do it is like kind of the same way that America kills children, which is, you know, they're mm -hmm. bombing military targets that there are children in the area and they don't care. And like, you know, it's not like, you know, I look at Israel's human rights abuses and I'm like, this is a really bad thing. But I, I don't necessarily view them as worse than America's war crimes because we do the same right. stuff. It's just not as close. Mm -hmm. It's not like we're bombing like Guadalajara, you know, and it's yeah. Or like actually because they're, they're kind of 
different. It's not like we're bombing New Mexico. It's not like we're bombing like Mexican populations in New Mexico, like of our minorities. That's not a thing. Um, well, if you uh, yeah. if you ask uh, some of the new Republican uh, nominees for president, they're uh, they're definitely kind of inching us closer to that uh, lexicon of wanting to go to war with Mexican cartels. But um, oh, you know, kind of kind of the first story. I don't want to spend too much time on it because I know we got some other stuff to cover. But uh, um, you know, if we want to do this drone strike the Mexican border and the cartels, if you think that's going to make the immigration problem any better, I think you're fooling yourself because. Um, you know, as we see in other countries, we will have immigration, you know, on mass coming from Mexico over here. If you think that you're going to solve um, violence with more violence in that respect. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's an escalation of violence. Like you see it in Israel, Palestine as well, where, you know, mm-hmm. there are there are killings. And, and this is something that's been happening for thousands of years. The the clans had to find in Scotland and anywhere else. They had to find ways to stop these blood feuds because mm-hmm. there was like an escalation of violence that would just never stop. And it, it works the same way in this situation. And it doesn't seem like these people really want to stop the violence on, on any of the sides. But it, it's yeah. the push and pull factor. So to bring immigration to the United States, there are push factors that push people out of other countries and into this country, but there are pull factors that bring them here. And like, if there wasn't destruction of the politics in Central America, like the, the U.S. government, CIA has been in pre-CIA. They've been meddling in these countries for, for decades and decades and decades and still have. And, you know, the result of that is immigration into the United States. And it's really, mm-hmm. really unfortunate um, all around. And I mean, you know, I care for these people a lot, the, the migrants, but um, I'd prefer to go a step further. It's like you know, and fix the leak in the boat rather than catch the water as it comes out. You know what I mean? Was that metaphor make yeah. sense? They're not just, just don't screw with these countries so much that people feel the need to come over here. They don't want to come over here. They have their own country. I mean, they want to come over here because of how much their country sucks and their country usually sucks. It's usually a shithole. Like Trump said, because yeah. of the CIA and us foreign policy, it's not always the case. And I think that maybe they're blamed a little bit too much, but I think Overall, in general, Central America is is much worse off in that regard. So, I mean, mm-hmm. what's going on here? It's it's in Israel is to buy new fleet of F thirty five fighters financed by USAID in the same like the same week as all this stuff is going on. This article was from July sixth, and then this thing with the they're buying F thirty fives July second. So they're buying F thirty fives stealth flight stealth fighter. And it's going to be financed through military aid. So I think they're going to loan them the money at a low interest rate to buy it. And I don't know, like, crazy. So, you know, they won't sell them to the UAE. I wonder why. I mean, that makes sense, actually. Gulf nations ties to China. I wouldn't sell it to them either. Um... The fighter jet is considered the world's most advanced, and apparently they were the first to use it. And I'm sure there's an element of like, we want the Israelis to use the F-35, and I'm sure they're giving, they're giving the State Department, the, uh, the Department of Defense, I'm sure they're giving them the, uh, you know, the data and the knowledge from the use of the F-35 in actual combat situations. So there's a benefit mm-hmm. to our military for them using this, but like, it's who doesn't benefit is... Syria, where they're just continuing to destabilize Syria. But yeah, sucks. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, we the U.S. gives a lot of um, money to Israel every single year. I think it's the tune of four billion dollars. So I'm not exactly surprised that they're sending them F-35s. And of course, I think it's uh, Lloyd Austin, who's the uh, Secretary of State, who um, Secretary at of one point Lloyd Austin. Okay, yeah, he was a um, employee at one point at um, Lockheed Martin's. Yeah, you know, yeah. you could kind of see what the tangled web we weave here. <laughs> right, right. So Lloyd Austin, his career was, uh, he was a general and then he was a defense contractor and and now he's the secretary of defense. And I, I think he was, um, I don't remember who put him in there. It might've been Biden or Trump, but yeah, it's unfortunate. You know, it's, it's the military industrial complex, Smedley Butler, war is a racket. Yep. Okay. So yeah, China's exports, export curbs, China's export curbs, a warning to the U S state media said. So Chinese state media has described restrictions on exports of rare metals used for making semiconductors and electric cars as a warning to the United States that China will not be squeezed out of global supply chain. So what you're getting um, is they are restricting the amount of rare metals that can be used for semiconductors in the United States. Uh, they're, they're stopping those exports because those are very important to us. So they're kind of sanctioning us a little bit not as much as the u.s really does but it's um but this is like not really different from the stuff that we are doing and now the state newspaper is saying but now the question is how long washington can ignore the warning over the consequences when china starts talking starts taking legitimate and reasonable measures to safeguard its national security and interests the state-backed newspaper said Compared with the U.S. pressuring allies to cooperate on chip bans against China, China's move this time may be more of a warning, showing that China will not be passively squeezed out of the global semiconductor supply chain, the newspaper said. So, like, they're, this is them trying to view this in the most, like, euphemistic, the most positive light. But, I mean, it's, it, it can be considered a warning, but really it's just kind of a low thing. Like, they're, they're not screwing with our stuff too much but but it's definitely screwing with us a little bit and they're they're trying to make it look as good as possible but it, i mean it is kind of doing what we're doing back to them but again it is something that our government has done to theirs and you know i i talk about this all the time that we are no longer in the economic position as as a country that the united states was in like the 90s and the u.s state department Foreign policy still acts like we can swing our weight around like we're the the biggest willy in town. And, and it's just not true. Um, so this is probably the sign of more to come. And it's probably a sign of, you know, Chinese power. Like China also needs us to buy their stuff. It's integral to their economy, but we need them as well. And they have much more power relative to us than they ever had before. And again, they're not really acting like it. Like they're not, they don't seem like they're, the government, our government doesn't seem like they're really acting like that's really the case. So before you respond, I'm sure you have something to say right now, but yeah, Calvin said mm -hmm. our friend, our good friends, Lockheed Martin and Raytheon Technologies. Yes, Calvin, they are, they are our friends. These are the companies that participated in, in the pride parades and everything. They must be good. They must be good. I saw Lockheed Martin was at the pride parade, so they must be fine. You could bomb as many Muslim kids as you want. If you put up that pride flag, 
at least in the eyes of the U.S. government. And um, oh. Craig, we are too dependent on the Saudis and Chinese, in my honest opinion. Yes. We are dependent on the Saudis for trying to keep that reserve currency petrodollar status going. Yep. Um, and we're dependent on the Chinese for goods. And that's not a good spot to be in. And a lot of it's very important. But yeah. Mm -hmm. what, what do you got on this, Kyle? So the whole chip conversation when it comes to China is very, very interesting because um, it's funny, me being a technician for General Motors, um, we're kind of seeing the consequences of 2020 and the supply chains breaking down a little bit um, in that respect, where we've had a lot of vehicles that, that had to be recalled so we could put in um, heated seat modules, parking assist modules, uh, side object detection mm -hmm. modules, all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. Um, now, when we start to talk about China and Taiwan, I don't know how many chips we get from China. Um, I, if I recall correctly, and I really do not have good numbers on this, at least not off the top of my head, um, I, I want to say it's probably a minority compared to those that we get from Taiwan. But um, you know, just to kind of break down real quick, let's say if China were to go to war for Taiwan, which is a pretty big stretch, and that if they were to succeed, which is an even bigger stretch, um, China's so dependent on imports that it's not in their self-interest at all to nationalize their chips or chips that they were to seize from Taiwan. And then you even have State Department officials saying that they would bomb the Taiwanese semiconductor um, factories if China were to go after Taiwan. Yeah. So like, you, yeah, like crazy. you said, it's a crazy act yeah. of war, but well, yeah. it, it's, it's kind of raises the question, is it really about the chips or is it something else? Um, but, you know, kind of to a point that you were saying earlier, we've done a lot to poke China in the eyes where we're building up militarily all around them. You know, we had meetings with the um, president of India, um, putting B-52 bombers to Australia, promising Japan by 2025 to double their military budget, specifically aimed at China, putting nukes yeah. into South Korea. And part of that's towards North Korea too, but it is to help encircle China. Um, I mean, North Korea is a Chinese puppet or, or a border right. state. It's not really yeah. like, yeah. But, but it, it's basically so the U.S. can dominate what they call the Indo-Pacific or as they would call it, the South China Sea. Also, you know, guaranteeing reefs from the Philippines, telling the Philippines that if China around, that we'll go to war with them. <laughs> um, and then, you know, obviously all this arm, we're actually, the, the U.S. is sending troops over to Taiwan to train right now. Yeah. They're sending all of these weapons. I mean, this is just a constant poking China in the eye because they've stated time and time again that uh, Taiwan is a red line for China. They will not mess around with China. This is the same deal with like Ukraine and Russia. And all the hawks are going to tell you that, you know, we have to arm Taiwan in the name of deterrence. And, you know, well, how well do we deter Putin from, you know, committing a coup and then Trump sending the arms in 2020? You know, how well did that work? <sighs> Clearly not very well. Yeah, right. Seriously. I mean, it's 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 kind of scary because it's it's from my perspective, it's like we're kind of clearly the aggressor. Although, you know, with the Philippines, we have that cultural connection. I know a lot of Americans feel the same way I do that, like, the Philippines must be protected in the name of um, freaking uh, Teddy Roosevelt and all that's holy. We must protect the Filipinos. But like, you know, the <laughs> other stuff, I don't know, man. I mean, like, I, I I used to be very pro defending Taiwan and I don't want to just throw them to the wolves. But at the same time, it's like, I don't really know what people really feel in Taiwan. Maybe they want to be a part of this. Um for, so my understanding, there's three parties, the Democratic People's Parties, the uh, or the Democratic People's Party, the Kuomintang, and there's one more party that I can't quite remember the name of. Um, Taiwan seems to want to declare independence, from what I understand, of um, kind of their population, this issue. 
but they're willing to work with the status quo is in they don't want war at all. And um, if we want to start kind of diving into the log- logistics of this, and I don't want to spend too much time on it, though, um, like Taiwan is a very defensible island and the Kaomintang is starting to look pretty good. And they're like, they want independence, but once again, they understand the status of the relationship where they can't declare independence because they understand that that would mean war with China. Yeah. And, you know, they, they just kind of understand the status quo and whatever it is, is just what it is. But China seeks peaceful reunification with Taiwan. Mm-hmm. But once again, they don't rule out military force if the U.S. were to uh, kind of put their thumb on the scales. I, I mean, like, just it's such a difficult situation because it's like, mm-hmm. it's... I mean, what ha- you can't like, you can't do it militarily. You just can't like, unless you want to start some crazy world war, but they, I assume it seems like what they're getting closer to is some sort of subversion to take it over diplomatically, likely through the strength of their own culture. I mean, China being what it is today, if it retains strength and continues to grow relative to the rest of the world, I can see that, you know, some younger Taiwanese people may you know, feel like they want to join China and they would kind of hand it over. Um, Yeah, peaceful re- reunification like Hong Kong. <laughs> yeah, Craig, I mean, you're right, is what it would be is be- because like, even if there are enough people that want to join China that they can like hand over China, there's going to be some bloodshed. And there's going to be a lot of people who don't want that. A lot, of, a lot of radicals who are against the Chinese Communist Party. Like, no matter what happens, this, this comes in with blood. It's just a matter of how much blood. Um, yeah, how it's willing a, they are. It's a very, very interesting and um, there's there's a lot of kind of strings on this whole situation that you really have to pull to understand the full context of it. But the U.S. is definitely kind of pressing the scales here. And it's it's not good because I think that, if anything, we should be diplomatic. And, you know, what are we going to do? Try to fight a war a couple thousand miles away? Um, it just it doesn't make a lot of sense. And then even like when you start to learn about the weather, of the South China Sea between China and Taiwan, there's like two times a year where they really have a chance to go for an amphibious invasion. And then even like the terrain on the coast of Taiwan is pretty rough. So, I mean, yeah, if they wanted to do that, they would have a hell of a time going after Taiwan militarily. So, I mean, this is a completely different situation than Ukraine and, you know, at, and Hong Kong. Um, it's just, there's a lot more to this. And like I said, I think a lot of uh, the world will come to kind of Taiwan's defense. And situation, um, it's it's hard to say where everything's going to fall. But um, to the idea that China is some kind of superpower still, they're um, they had overestimated their population in like in the twenty to forty year old range by a hundred million about ten years ago. Oh my so god! Yes, so they're in very very dire straits now. I don't know how much of this is true. I've heard a lot of this from Peter Zihan, and I I take his word for it. But like in ten years, China. I'm pretty is sure he works for the CIA. It, it's possible, but the, the thing that's weird about that is that he should be a China hawk then, because the whole U.S. government is it a China is, hawk? He, I, I thought he was. No, no. Uh, it it well, he thinks like that it, China just sucks. He thinks they're a paper tiger. I think his diagnosis is correct because he even said um, by 2050 that um, China's population is going to be halved, which I can actually believe because the majority of their about 30% of their population still does agriculture by hand. And there's mm. like, I think it's a third of their population is also diabetic and not what? because they're fat and overweight. It's because they're so malnourished. Like wow. the pe- people have this dystopian idea about China. They're still a relatively poor country. And in the course of like 80 years, they're going to see their highest highs and they're going to go back to their lowest lows. I shouldn't say they're a poor country. 
they have a great GDP, but you also have to consider the fact that they have to do a lot of, they have to use a lot of that GDP to kind of maintain their population and also build up these ghost cities and tear them down. And part of the reason why China also wanted to negotiate a peace deal in Ukraine is because they have a lot of fertilizer over in Ukraine. And a lot of the land in China actually isn't very like farmable. So right. to their best interest, <laughs> sell this war so that way they can get some fertilizer to feed their population. Because they, I think they get like 100% of their grain imported. Like China has to import a lot of stuff and all their neighbors hate them. So once again, yeah. the situation of a Taiwanese invasion, um, if they get sanctioned by the world, they're going to be in for a rude awakening. Because I mean, there's people, there's civilians that are writing cultural manifestos. And when people go hungry, then shit could really pop off. Yeah. Uh, um, so the last thing I want to say on this, just because I uh, I just did a two and a half hours on China with the Biting the Bullet guys, and that episode was released on my own feed today. Um, so if you're if you're interested in my takes on China, I, I did a really long overview on China, talking about the culture there. So there's so much that I that I could say on this, but ultimately, it's like it's China's undergone a lot of changes in the last hundred years, and like. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. Um, okay. The next one. Judge limits Biden administration contact with social media firms. Okay. So, so there's been a lot of these things, like I said, in the judicial branch this week. Uh, a federal judge in Louisiana ruled Tuesday that the Biden administration likely violated the First Amendment by censoring unfavorable views on social media over the course of the coronavirus pandemic calling the efforts Orwellian. So U.S. District Court Judge Terry Dowdy also issued a sweeping preliminary injunction barring numerous federal officials and agencies, all these people. So, you know, this is about the Democrat, the Democrats, the Biden administration, um, them like telling social media firms what to take down and implying that certain things were like Russian disinformation when maybe they weren't this type of thing. And they're, they're being told to stop by this judge. And like what, what they say here is this decision, this judge's decision cites a wide range of topics that he says all were suppressed on social media at the urging of administration officials, including the opposition to COVID vaccines, masking lockdowns, and the lab leak theory. Opposition to the validity of the 2020 election, opposition to President Joe Biden's and other officials' policies, and statements claiming that the story surrounding a laptop belonging to Biden's son, Hunter Biden, was true, which now they've admitted were true after several year or two after the election. So each topic suppressed was a conservative idea, which is quite telling, Dowdy declared. This targeted su suppression of conservative ideas is a perfect example of viewpoint discrimination of pol political speech. American citizens have the right to engage in free de debate about the significant issues affecting the country. The evidence produced thus far depicts an almost dystopian scenario. Um, so yeah, they're calling it Orwellian, Orwellian, they're saying they're controlling speech and they're just like, um, yeah. So, but Biden is still saying they're killing people. The only pandemic we have is among the unvaccinated and they're killing people. And like, can I say this on YouTube? But like, that's just, that's not true. It was never true. Um, but yeah, what do you have to say on this, Kyle, if anything? Yeah, I mean, it's so ridiculous, the idea that um, 
the, the government can be the arbiters of misinformation and the truth when, um, you know, just we have decades and decades of uh, evidence to the contrary. And like this should, it should have been put to bed forever ago, but I mean, this should be like another nail in the coffin of the, oh, it's a private company, bro. Um, clearly for years now, the, you know, the government has been kind of in bed with social media. Like this should not be a shocker to anybody. Anybody that's surprised that like any of this stuff's happening, like on the Twitter files, um, they said that Biden and Trump were both kind of dicking with Twitter to, uh, you know, monitor certain things that were going on. So, I yeah. mean, this shouldn't, it like, was more Democrat, be... but it was both is the key. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, people shouldn't be surprised by this at all. And it, it, like I said, it, when you have a tool like social media where everybody's at, you can't assume, you know, that that's always going to be free and safe for, you know, ever and a half. I mean, this was pretty clear. I remember back when the uh, laptop story first broke, when you heard about people getting like shut down or, you know, traffic blocked because they were trying to share the story. Like, okay, right. well. I mean, the New York um, Post even. Yeah. If it's Russian disinformation, then it should be pretty clear that it's bullshit, but it wasn't. So. Why not just let the information get out there and let people do with it what they may? If it tanks Biden's career, well, good. I mean, Jesus Christ, the dude had a 50-year career. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if this doesn't tank it, then I don't know what will. It, it almost feels like they're letting it be tanked right now. I've heard a lot of people give yes. opinions like that, that they're going to select someone else, maybe Gavin Newsom. Personally, I would prefer Biden to Gavin Newsom. I mean, it's probably both just, you know, deep state stuff anyway. It's probably just the executive mm -hmm. branch running him, but, like, in the Democratic establishment. Um, but regardless, I really, really don't like, I mean, I don't like Biden, but I really don't like Gavin Newsom. Yeah, I mean, I, I made the joke on Twitter that uh, I may just vote for Biden because uh, he keeps racking up L's and I'm liking all the L's and all the Republicans finally have a sack. So uh, I don't know, I like it. And, you know, <laughs> the Supreme Court and then Roe v. Wade, um, I consider those W's and honestly, I don't think the Republicans would have half the balls they do now if Trump got reelected. I don't think Matt Gates would be putting forth all the uh, great bills that he's putting forth because um, there was a bill. I, I, I forget what it is off the top of my head. If you listen to Dave DeCamp's episode that he put up this morning, July 6th, um, Matt Gates voted for, I want to say it was like an FBI bill or like a, something with the NSA. And then now he's put forth bills to like help restrict the uh, CIA's or I can't remember what the exact context was, but. Um, you know, it's partisan politics and when Democrats are in charge, Republicans tend to be a lot better. Doesn't mean I want Democrats in charge. I want Republicans to be better. That's yeah. a take home message. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, yeah. And I, uh, what, what scares me a little bit about this is that, you know, I've seen people calling to like pack the courts. I mean, they don't say pack the courts. They say like expand the court. Like it's all euphemized where they're like attacking the judicial branch is illegitimate. I really saw an illegitimate sign not being used as a tongue in cheek way. Like the name of my podcast is it was being used <laughs> like legitimately. They were saying the court is illegitimate, which is scary as it's like, you know, the, these are checks and balances that are there. The legislative branch and the executive branch are supporting your politics and the judicial branch mm -hmm. is not supporting your politics. So it's working the way it's supposed to. And I'm not out here calling the legislative branch illegitimate or the executive branch illegitimate just because it's not functioning the way I like, you know, and, and yeah. that, that type of stuff. And I'm, you know, that's probably a minority of people, but there, I, I think that it is pretty common, common. Yes, Craig, FDR, the democratic fascist FDR did expand the court. He packed the court like the democratic fascist that he was. 
That is why Mussolini <laughs> praised him and many other policies that FDR, again, the fascist FDR, the literal fascist who Mussolini praised and described as, I think Mussolini described him as being democratic fascist, fascist. He packed the court. And, and it's a scary thing because it's, it's a direct power grab because it well, dilutes yeah, okay. the court. Yeah, I always thought this point was really interesting. And to see people say it, it's just like the most mask off thing that you could possibly say when you see people say, expand the court. Like that, that, that's them essentially saying that we want to expand the court with our own judges to pass whatever we want. Like yeah. the, the goal for the government, from what I understand of the founders, is that they wanted as much kind of stalemates and negation as possible. So that way the government couldn't in interfere on individuals' rights. That's the way I think the government should function. And obviously we're very, very far away from that. And there's a large group of people who want the exact opposite of that. They want a Supreme Court that's going to just rubber stamp everything that comes through there. And I think it's a very, very dangerous precedent. Yeah, and I think you're right. And I, I would be, I've never seen someone on the right who's calling to pack the courts or expand the court. I have it, not either. But if I did, I would call it out in the same way, just so we're clear. Nobody, yeah. any, anybody calling to expand the Supreme Court is doing a blatant power grant. Like, they, they just are. That's, there's no other mm -hmm. reason to add more to the court. It doesn't make them more effective. It doesn't do anything. And if you really felt like the court should have more people and it should be done over a period of time that allows multiple administrations over time to, to get more picks on the court, not a single administration that completely dilutes the past power and increases your own. Um, yeah, it's changing rules in the middle of the game because you're not winning. You're, you're totally right, Craig. That is exactly what it is. Um, and that's why it's screwed up. I mean, if you want to change the rules for the future, that's one thing, but you, you can't just, you can't just, you can't, it's not democratic. It's not Republican. It's, it's bad. It's authoritarian is what it is. Um, Okay, so, God, I don't really want to talk about this too much. So we're going to talk about this briefly. What the Supreme Court's rejection of student loan relief means for uh, borrowers. So in one of the most anticipated decisions of its current term, U.S. Supreme Court has struck down President Biden's sweeping plan to discharge some or all federal student loan debt for tens of millions of Americans. So I, I think what happened here is kind of the same thing that I think happens with DeSantis. DeSantis will throw out some crazy, like, right-wing law, um, and he'll get it passed. He'll get it through the legislative branch in, in Florida, and he'll get it passed into law, and there'll be these headlines that DeSantis is doing this, this crazy stuff in, in Florida that most people think is, like, over the edge, even if you're, like, on the right, or a lot of people do, at least. And that stuff will just invariably get cut down by the court, but it doesn't matter because he didn't really want to do it in the first place. He didn't care, but he got the headline out of it for passing the legislation. And it doesn't have any actual effect. It's all just optics. Um, and that's kind of what I see on the other side with this student loan thing. I don't think, I mean, they've been talking about this for years. They've been talking about this for years. They're not, they're not doing anything, you know? Um, they never actually... I don't think they plan on doing student loan debt relief. I mean, Biden wouldn't, Biden was the one who wrote the original policy that allowed for the cost of college to just go up so much. Um, and they don't have authority to, and of course they don't have authority to, because they're just like, you can't just like, what is debt relief? It's not like, 
do people really think that money is this magical thing that you can just like wipe the numbers off or like wipe the numbers off somewhere else? Like the accounting has to be corrected for like there are there are people who are owed money. There are organizations that are owed money and those organizations are likely not very good organizations, but there is no chance in reality in our government system that those very powerful financial institutions who are in with the government and loaning money, they're not going to not get paid. So if there's student debt relief, it's going to happen in the form of the taxpayers paying for it. And that means that mm -hmm. upper class people and lower class and lower middle class and anybody who either joined the military or didn't go to college and did something else, it's coming out of them to pay for people who took loans. And I think that student loans are completely... I think they're wrong. I think the way that they're done is wrong. I think the fact that they can't get forgiven is evil. Um, and it's like, it just doesn't exist up until today. It's just insane for loans to never be forgiven. Um, it's, it's like a biblical thing to forgive loans. It's like even anti-Christian, it's anti-Western to do this. It's, it's absolutely wild, but that's the way they've done it. And it's happened because of legislation written specifically for this. And that has caused people to be able to get loans for whenever so that they can get loans for as much as possible. So they just, the colleges just charge whatever and they raise the prices 8% every year. And it's just, it's crazy. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I like the way that you framed it as in like, this is something that the Biden administration is just doing. Um, maybe knowing that it's not gonna pass because it sounds really good. Um, I, I think it's a great way to grab votes, not only from just everybody in general, but specifically because women are actually um, the majority of debt holders, I believe they hold 60% of the debt and they're overwhelmingly represented in college debt as well. So um, when you have them being able to campaign on Roe v. Wade and on student debt forgiveness, I mean, you were going to drive a ton of women to go vote for Democrats. I mean, it's, it's honestly kind of genius. And this is the thing that the right can't do that the left seems to do flawlessly every single time is that they understand how to get to their base and motivate them to vote. Um, I can't say the right wingers have necessarily found the right, um, the same thing. Trump has it a little bit, but I don't think he's quite as decisive. I think he kind of stumbles into these things rather than implements them. I think the left is very, very good at kind of implementing these plots to get people to just go out and vote in droves. Well, it's patronage. It's, it's they're, they're literally bribing people. Like if, if you're in a yes. situation where you owe $10,000 in debt and one party wants to forgive that debt, I'd vote for them. I would. Mm -hmm. I don't have any student loan debt. If I did, and I believed that the Democrats were actually going to give it to me, which I don't, but if I did, then I would vote for them because like, why not? That would benefit me personally a lot, unless there's some other policy, but it's like, it is just bribing me. And that's what right. people who created the Republican government of the United States, like it's supposed to be a Republic. This is what they were talking about. Um, I wish I had quotes ready. I, I didn't prepare them, but there are people you can find talking about how democracy invariably just leads to bribery. And this was mm -hmm. direct bribery in the early 1900s with mob bosses, like getting their, their people elected and everything. And I, I mean, the incentives are there to direct, to tell people, Hey, I'm directly going to pay money to you. I mean, there should be some way of stopping this. Um, right. but yeah. Okay. Next one. REI. REI fostered a progressive rep reputation and its workers began to unionize. Yeah, so REI is this company. Um, it's a co-op. It's this whole thing. They're supposed to be like this super progressive organization. And like, you know, 
I know, or I, I know that, well, in my worldview, I know that companies don't really have values like this. They sometimes do, and probably Ben and Jerry's does, but they're a private corporation, not a public. But REI is a public corporation, and it is a larger corporation. It's a very large, and it's a, it's a global or at least North American corporation that has a lot of stores. And like that is there to make money. I could have told you this. Mm. So there are these people who got jobs at REI based on the values of working there. And then they're like, and then they're mad when they're not being treated right by the company. And so they, they have started unions. Um, this, this woman says, I mean, we all started working at REI because of its values, says Chang, a visual (laughs) presentation specialist who has been at the flagship store in New York's Soho neighborhood for five years. So here's a hipster in a neoliberal neighborhood working at the REI in Soho. And she's like, why isn't this corporation having my values? Like, oh my God, it's a corporation. It doesn't have values like that. It just wants to make money. That's the whole structure. Did a whole episode on this. Um, It's one of my favorites. And people need to understand that these corporations do not care. They do not care. They just want to make money. It's the same reason why Raytheon and, and other corporations will throw out pride flags because that's how they make money. Um, and it's why they stopped mm. doing it as much this year, because this year was the first in like 10 or 20 years where acceptance of LGBTQ people has gone down. And it's because a lot of people, it's gone a little bit overboard and corporations notice that they notice what happened with Bud Light and they're like, okay, it is about making money. So let's back off. So corporations, it's never about values. They don't have values. Their values are make money. Um, yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. You're not going to work for a corporation or you shouldn't be at least in the expectations they're going to uh, kowtow to your will. Like, yeah, they'll uh, sit there and throw up a pride flag, but I mean, it's all political. It's all for expedient purposes, right? They're not doing it because they sincerely care about gays or lesbians or anybody like that. And they're not converting their profile picture to a uh, black picture because they stand with Black Lives Matter. They realize that this could get them market share and they realize it's going to get them, you know, more in the marketplace. So, of course, they, they don't care. So, you know, I it's just silly to think that yeah. any kind of big corporation yeah. has your interests at heart. Yeah. And it's like, um, sorry. So, like, it, they're saying things like this. Despite being a large corporation, we had hopes that REI would be a different co- type of company. And look, I assume that. Like the floor level workers, like the people working at the stores, the people maybe mid-level at corporate, those people are probably super down. Like they're probably 100% down with all this stuff. But once you get up into that upper echelon of like upper corporate, that it doesn't, that there's no incentive for people with those values to be at these corporations at those levels. So the CEO Mm -hmm. is going to be like, you know, they're going to be the same type of person. Um, they're going to be the same type of person that's, that's a CEO at Raytheon or, or freaking uh, Hasbro or wherever the heck they are. They're the upper echelon is going to be those same people. And they're the ones who are going to make these big decisions. So REI leaders argue that negotiating with a union would hinder the company's ability to resolve concerns at the speed the world is moving. As CEO Eric Arts, exactly the CEO, doesn't want a union, said on a corporate podcast recorded last year before the first union victory. We respect our employees' rights under the law, including the right to choose whether to be represented by a union. However, we do not feel a union is necessary for our employees who enjoy industry-leading wages and benefits, 
along with multiple outlets through which to provide input to co-op leadership. So like, that's their opinion. That's their opinion. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, if your employees are in a situation where they're bad enough that, that they're, that they're feeling they're treated bad enough, not that they're being treated like, it's not like they're mining cobalt in Africa, right? But they're being treated. There are specifics later on in the article about why some of the employees are starting a union and they're completely legit because if they really were treating them well enough and above market enough that there would be not enough support for a union, then a union wouldn't have a victory. The union Mm -hmm. only has a victory because the people have enough support behind the union and the people have enough support behind the union because of how bad the situation has got. I actually find it comparable to the uh, Palestine's Palestine situation because like, you know, in a, in a situation where like 12 Palestinian civilians get killed, um, where 12 Palestinians get killed, there's like, of course you're going to have some kickback. Like somebody's going to go shoot someone in that situation where 12 of them have been killed. And in this situation there, the employees are not being treated well enough. If the employees were being treated well enough, they just wouldn't sign up for the union. And if the employees were whining enough, where they just weren't good employees and the, the fricking, um, the pay and the benefits that they were giving their employees were so good, then they would be able to hire other people that to fill those roles that weren't going towards the union. It's also mm-hmm. possible that they're hiring specifically people who would want to unionize, but I, I, I don't find that as convincing myself. Um, what do you think? I know I talked for a long time. No, that's okay. Um, yeah. I don't know if it would depend on like where the place is at and all that, but like, you know, I don't think places are necessarily going to voluntarily just up and unionize because I mean, there comes a lot of costs with that. I feel right. like there's a lot of paperwork and then only that you have to worry about. And you're opening yourself strike. up to, to danger in your job. You don't want to do that. It's, it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's much easier to just kind of say like, Hey, you, we'll pay you this and this is what it is. We'll evaluate your skill rather than having like some collective bargaining. And like, you know, obviously if you guys want to do that, that's fine. But that has to be on the business owner to decide, I want to unionize. It shouldn't be forced upon the business owner, legally speaking, that he has to unionize because Mm -hmm. that's a violation of his, not only freedom of association, but freedom of his property. Yeah, 100%. So it's like, it's, it's like, I think people, I don't think anybody should be forced to be in a union, but I think that if people get to the point where they're like, we need a union, they should form a union and the threat of a union itself will prevent unions. If the company really doesn't want the union because of the costs associated with that, then yeah. raise your stuff a little bit. Like listen to your employees, because if you give them enough, if you give them enough, they just won't unionize. You see here in this article, mm. they, they often pay above 15 an hour. Look, if you're in Soho, 15 an hour isn't enough. Okay. It's just not, um, you know, maybe if you're in like the woods of Pennsylvania, I know $15 is probably, is probably good enough based on, you know, I've been out there, but mm-hmm. like there's these other issues here. Like, um, they describe schedules so inconsistent that a part-timer might get 14 hours one week, then 24 hours the next, and then four the following. I mean, that's not cool, right? <laughs> like that's a tough situation. Um, well, like, is that by choice or is that by the hours that they're giving them? Well, in it doesn't say specifically, but from the context, it does seem sure. to say that they're being that that, that they're being um, that they're that's being given to them, not by choice. Sure. Um, so this is what they want. They want guaranteed minimum hours and financial stability and higher pay. 
So that's all they want. The pro-union workers want guaranteed minimum hours, which I think makes perfect sense. Um, you know, like your the company you're working for, they wouldn't be like, oh, we'll just like you can come in for half your shifts. Like they're not gonna accept that, right? Uh-huh. Um but yeah, they shouldn't be forced to have a union, but uh, like I've gone too far into it. But yeah, I do think that the fact that they want a union means that they need it and they should do some other stuff. So let me, I'm going to read yeah. some comments here. So different topic. Did anyone else see the DeSantis ad on Twitter? A dig at Trump being pro pot pride. What did you think? Um, I mean, I saw that ad was was done. You guys should all check that ad out. I did not like the ad. Um. It was done in the style of like these like really emotionally based uh, like TikTok videos. It had like that type of audio in it. It's very it's very emotional. And like you, you I found myself like caught up in it a little bit, even though I actively was watching it, did not like what he was saying. Um, you know, I, I think that in certain cultural lenses, um, especially in stuff with regards to kids, some of the LGBTQ stuff. And I, I don't think this is even coming from mainstream LGBTQ. It's coming from these extreme organizations and often pushed by like, you know, the crazy example, but Soros-backed prosecutors and Soros-backed politicians and things. Like, I think they're going a little far in, in, in certain situations. But I also mm-hmm. think that the response from Republicans like DeSantis is going a little far in the other direction. I would like to see a, a moderation on on both sides of this. Um. But I'm I'm gonna move on from that because I want to keep talking about the other things. Sorry, Kyle, but I I would like to move on to the next topic. Yeah, um, no, dude, you're good. You're good. So along with multiple outlets through which to provide input, co-op leadership. Yeah, it's such like a corporate thing to say. Like there, it's mm-hmm. it's um that they're saying like, oh yeah, like we give our employees this. It's so good. But like ultimately, they wouldn't they wouldn't want to make a union if you were treating them well. Or if they were that mm-hmm. whiny, you'd be able to replace them very easily. Um, so UPS walked away from the Teamsters and their negotiations recently with no intention of coming back or bringing any final offers. The current contract is set to expire July 31st. Yeah, so I don't know what's going on with UPS, but there's there's a number of these fights. There's a number of these mm-hmm. fights going on. Um, but yeah, I, I think that like <laughs> Trump with the... With with the, the the Santa stuff is too much. It's like it's, it's ad gave me like uh Christo Fash vibes, you know, like unironic Christo Fash vibes. Um yeah. Uh so what what do you think on any of that, Kyle? Before uh, we go to the yeah, last or, article. Yeah, as far as like the DeSantis ad? The DeSantis ad or the uh union stuff. Um, yeah, I mean I I kinda agree with you. Like if the working conditions are that bad then um, you know, they're going to have to put pressure either on the employer to figure something out or they're just going to have to quit and go somewhere else. Um, you know, Obviously, everyone's going to have their own individual circumstances and it sucks if your job sucks, but at a certain point, you got to kind of cut your losses and decide if it's time to move on to something better. Um, or you know, if you really like your job, then you know maybe you could see if the you can work something out with you and your boss. Um, now, as far as like the DeSantis ad, Trump used to wave the LGBTQ flags and he even said in a campaign speech that he would do everything he could to protect LGBTQ rights. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he now as to whether or not he personally believes this to his core, I, nobody could tell you. He's just a brand who knows how to brand himself to the maximum amount of people. That, yeah. That's all that really Trump is. Trump doesn't even know what he believes. He just knows whatever the guy who just brought him his last Big Mac told him. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And honestly, like when Trump was campaigning in 2016, I think that um, the pride flag had a very different connotation to certain people back then than it did today. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, like, you know, you know what I mean? Like in 2016, in, like today or. OK, so first back in 2016, I had seen something very interesting. It was like around 2016. I had seen like a Polish like political thing and they had a they had a flag with like the the arrows through it, which is like a traditional anti-fascist, anti-authoritarian flag. Um, and but the lines, the the arrows were were done one through a um, one through a swastika representing fascists or Nazis. One line through a hammer and sickle referencing like death to the communists. And then there was another arrow through an LGBTQ flag. And that was to them, I think, if I'm remembering correctly and I'm interpreting it correctly, not necessarily against gay people, but it was against like Western, um, Western, um, whatever it was from like, Western globalism and everything. So, and, mm-hmm. but just this year, I've started to view that the, the pride flag, um, in a different light because of the way that it was hung over the white house and the imagery along with, um, along with certain, um, uh, along with certain, like there were some campaign ads, there were some recruitment ads that had people that had, uh, uniformed military personnel saluting the pride flag. And that to me is like, I mean, that's a, whoa, that's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're, you're putting this in a very ceremonial position. It, it mm-hmm. almost feels like it's being co-opted by the American empire as a, um, a, as a new flag and it being, it being like flown or not flown, but like laid down in the center of the white house over the seal. I mean, that's U S flag code territory. You usually people talk about the U S flag code. They're talking about some random situation where civilians using it. But in the mm-hmm. case of government buildings, I mean, it's it's very clear what that shows, um, having that flag there. So, like, I'm not to me oftentimes, um, and you know, some of my a lot of my friends and uh, some of our listeners are themselves, um, you know, parts of the LGBTQ community. So I, I I have no ill will towards them, but I am starting to view the LGBTQ flag as well, not the LGBTQ flag anymore, but rather a representation of of globalism and of, uh, the new American empire. So, so they're talking, yes, Calvin, the ultra Mimi video with DeSantis. Um, I, I actually didn't know it was a real DeSantis video. I thought it was one of these fan made videos. Cause there's a lot of stuff online from DeSantis and, um, Trump, uh, influencers going back and forth. And it is an insane video. And he definitely has some young kid on his marketing team. I mean, they learned from how important social media was. So, for everything I just said, Kyle, you, you got anything on that? Um, yeah, the Santa's Chad, but I can't say I, I've seen that. You, you um, gotta look, you gotta see it after <laughs> we get off here. It's freaking crazy, man. Yeah. I'll have to, uh, I'll have to check it out. Um, I, I there was something that you were talking about right at the uh, beginning there, but it, it just slipped my mind. So I do, apologize. Do you remember <laughs> anything that it was any like what related to it? No, no, not off the top of my head. I'm, I'm trying to think, but it's, uh, it's escaping me at the moment. I was talking about the LGBTQ flag. Oh, there we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Thank you, thank you. Okay, so yeah, the LGBTQ flag, essentially, it, they're almost oh, using it as like a sign of... 
I was talking uh, okay, about Poland no, no, no. first. That's that was what no, I talked I about. I first. don't know why I I literally completely forgot that you were talking about the LGBTQ flag. Um, okay, that is almost like a sign of conquest at this point because they're really kind of flying it in all the places where like an American flag used to go. Like it, it's almost like they're trying to hedge out the kind of normal blue collar representation, like the I'm a proud American culture with this LGBTQ kind of uh flag in its place and i think a lot of people who are probably more of like my persuasion you know i'm an automotive mechanic for the last 10 years um i've worked with the last shop i was at i literally worked with one of the biggest um donating trump supporters in the entire state of pennsylvania <laughs> I, I, I swear to, he was a blue collar mechanic yes drove a uh, gmc pickup truck that every is really day, not a good use of his money dude Holy crap. No, no, I, I agree, but he absolutely loved Donald Trump, and this kind of speaks to his voter base. Dude, that now, is crazy, I'm sure man. I'm sure if you went, like, a couple states over, there are probably people that are donating way more. But, I mean, he loved Donald Trump. And, like, this is kind of like who I picture as an American. Like, this dude has two kids. His kids go to sports games, and, you know, he drives his truck to his blue-collar job. He has a wife. And, you know, she drives a Cadillac, their house is beautiful, and they live in this nice neighborhood. And he's a very, very talented dude, a very, very good technician. And he understands what it means to be an American, right? Where he's, you know, he kind of has this American, um, the, the empire baby kind of deal. But I think there's something beautiful about that, about having pride in your country. It's something bigger than yourself. Um, but like this LGBTQ, you know, this victim narrative. They're trying to put this flag in place of that. And I think that really rubs a lot of people the wrong way. And I don't think this was the, the way the flag was, to your point, back in 2016 versus 2023. Right, right. It, it's taken on a, a, a very much a new meaning. Um, it, it has. So it's, you know, it's unfortunate. And, you know, I, I again, I want to be very clear that when I'm criticizing or when I'm talking about this as a symbol, I'm not like. I'm not attacking the LGBTQ community in any way. I'm, I'm almost doing the opposite because I'm saying this symbol that used to be of for the LGBTQ community has now been co-opted by the largest and most powerful empire in history. And that's kind <laughs> of insane, right? Like, isn't that crazy? Like what used to be like, like, can you imagine you go back to the, to one of them stonewall gays like 40 years ago and you're like, yeah, in 45 years. This is going to be mm -hmm. such an accepted symbol that it's actually going to be flown in place of the American flag by the United States. And it's going to be mm -hmm. like literally on the floats of companies that are multi-billion dollar companies, uh, some trillion dollar companies that help to bomb innocent people in uh, the Middle East. And they'd be like, okay, um, you go to one of these institutions now. We haven't closed all of them. This is where you belong. Um, because that's insane and we're never going to do that. But that is, that is what happened. Moloch will get what Moloch wants to get. Okay. Huh. Last article. Last article. If you have any questions, go ahead and ask them right now. I'll get to them before the end if you ask them. But we're going to end on an article um, about archaeology, uh, which is, is part of anthropology. So we've got. A revered and powerful female leader revealed bones by new method to determine sex of old bones. So, so this is the, the time where I shit on anthropology because this is wild. So this is really annoying. So archaeology and anthropology, before I read any of this, they're not real science. 
their argument. They're like, you find stuff, you, you make arguments for, for what it is. And it's very, very political. It always has been political and it's very political right now. So everything is affected by the perceptions of the world. And, you know, they call it a soft science, but like you can't do experiments like you can in biology or chemistry or something. This stuff is not innate. And the biases are way more pronounced in things like anthropology, where you're trying to reconstruct ideas of the past than they are in even something like psychology, where you're doing, which is already garbage, by the way. But like, it's way different than um, anthropology, where you're just, you're just kind of guessing. You're, you're, you're kind of guessing and you're using your own biases because you producing something that meshes with the modern culture is what's going to sell more and it might not be true. Um, mm -hmm. so, okay. So just, so, okay. Before I say anything more, remember that like the knowledge coming out of universities at the time does not necessarily mean that it's the most true just because it's the most popular. This is completely a situation where like the people who fund the studies get to decide and the people like who have these large organizations that can produce and expand knowledge and also the other side kind of shut people down who are maybe studying something you don't want to or reaching conclusions you don't want to. You might not get any funding. So maybe you got you to gotta fudge the numbers a little bit and they even do this in the hard sciences. But it's way easier to fudge the numbers where you can just make up some nonsense that other people believe because they want to, because it meshes with their vision of the world. So in this situation, like, there are biases. So there, there's a situation where there's this grave with a bunch of grave goods in it. And it was supposed to be a man, but they, they did some other stuff on it. And it's a, it's a woman, I guess. And they're using new methods of like looking at pelvises and, and whatever. And I don't doubt that it was a woman. Um, so there are plenty of, there, there are plenty of situations where archeological finds have been found where there are women buried with swords. There are plenty of, there are plenty more situations. There are many more situations where men have been found buried with swords, but whether or not it's a man or a woman doesn't necessarily mean that just because you're buried with a sword means that you are a warrior. That's just, mm -hmm. that's just not true. And this is a huge, huge assumption that happens, uh, specifically with like modern archeology span because it's based on our understanding of the world. And if, if you read enough about traditional societies, both contemporary and of the past, then you know that they had very different ways of understanding status and wealth than we do. So they wouldn't necessarily do what makes the most sense to us. So look, um, they base it's, it's really weird because like they base this idea that she was this revered leader based on her having the most amount of grave goods in her grave. And like, maybe that makes the most sense to you at first. Like, maybe that's like the first thing you think of is like, oh yeah, she had the most grave goods because she was a really powerful leader. But like, there are plenty of situations where people of spiritual significance who weren't necessarily leaders at all were buried with grave goods. There's a lot of graves across the world, across different continents, where the people who are 
um, where the people who are being buried with a lot of grave goods, they might have like they might have had physical deformities, which while they wouldn't have been leaders, um, they might they wouldn't have been leaders at their time. I mean, they could have been like some of the Egyptian pharaohs and stuff, but they might have just been chosen as like a representation on earth of something like a god or something and then when they died or maybe even were sacrificed and there are, there are certain archaeological finds that show evidence of sacrifice they would be buried with these grave goods um so it's it's very contextual to different civilizations and i really don't like it when people come in here and they just they just make these wild assumptions because they want this woman to be a leader and i'm also not saying that women were not leaders at this time but what i am saying is assuming that she's this giant high ranking just the fact that you're saying high ranking is just going so crazy into understanding the world from western modern perspectives because the idea of rank is nonsense i mean this is a vertical hierarchical idea but in so many hunter-gatherer societies both today and in the past from many different definitions that we have they have contextual leaders they have contextual leaders their leaders they don't have a freaking king that comes out and rules everything. They would have leaders, like there would be women who were leading things that were in women's spheres. There would be elders who were women. They might be, they could be viewed as being in the most powerful position in a lot of ways. There would have then been men who were in other high-ranking positions or high-ranking or, or however you want to say it, but they would have a high status. But they would maybe not necessarily be viewed as higher or lower than the other, but it wouldn't matter what context it was in. Th this idea of like a hierarchy of up to one leader or something is just such a modern invention. It's crazy. Um, if you look at the Apache, I, I want to say the Apache, but some Plains Indians tribe, they had a situation where during certain times of the year, they would be led by one leader. And then it, at certain other times of the year, when there was like a war party going on or something, or there was a more dangerous situation, those ceremonial leaders would have direct control in a way that they didn't at other times. They would be essentially a tyrant for a short period, period of time because the situation required it. And in that situation, they would be the leaders. But outside of that situation, they would fall into whatever other role they would, they would lead at that time. So the idea of a vertical... Um, hierarchy, this idea that it just goes up and there are people above others. This is a very Western idea, not just Western, but, but modern idea. It's a very, it would be a very Confucian idea, a very Chinese idea as well. But hunter gatherers do not live in this way. And it's crazy to me that they look at this and they see this woman who has a dagger and a bunch of loot. And they're like, oh yeah, this was a war leader. And she was the most important person ever in any context. She probably was important, but it doesn't mean she led anybody. She could have been bought, she could have been like brought into the world. She could have been born with some weird thing and then they sacrificed her for it. We don't know. We don't know. Release you from your earthly body. Okay. Um, we assume too much about past societies and it's, it's destroyed by the, um, the perceptions that we have based on our own society. So sorry, I just talked for a long time and it was about something that you might not have much to say on, but Kyle, please go ahead if you have any input on this. Uh, Kyle, are you muted? Did you drop out here? Jeez, no, 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 I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, I did have myself muted. Um, no, no, no I'm, I actually do have a few things to say on this. Um, this is something that 
uh, a lot of the guys in kind of like the manosphere talk about. And the reason why this is relevant is because we live in like a very feminine primary social order where we always look at women as correct. So this idea that a woman would be some kind of queen because she was just buried with a dagger, I think does kind of resemble our current society at large where they want to project this kind of strong, exactly. independent woman registered trademark <laughs> onto this Hashtag woman. Hashtag girl boss of the eighth century. Yeah. Right. That's exactly what they're, they're projecting. It's like a container um, kind of deal. Like, I don't want to say a container word, but like a container article or a container situation where they're going to project all their hopes and dreams onto this discovery. Um, and, you know, could it be true? Sure. But is it? We don't know. We need more mm -hmm. context surrounding this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and like one thing that you had mentioned, too, that I also want to talk about when it comes to like... Um, our hunter gatherer past. Um, one thing that's always that people tend to leave out, especially in our sphere, is that like we think of the hunter gatherers and we primarily think of the hunters in terms of like, hey, the men went out and killed stuff and then brought home the uh, you know, the food for everybody else. But what a lot of people never really focus on in this respect is the women's aspect of being the gatherers, where our ancestors actually ate, I think it was up to like 60 grams of fiber a day, mm -hmm. which is a lot of fiber so um when you think about like the context of our modern diet um i think the average american gets sometimes less than like 10 grams of fiber a day i could be off on those numbers but it's not very much and um there's many 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 studies on just how beneficial fiber is for yeah. you so um it's probably why our hunter-gatherer ancestors were relatively more healthy is because they may have had more saturated fat in their diet, but they displaced all the negative effects of saturated fat with probably all the fiber that we're getting. Yes. And I mean, that's, that's a thing that comes with less processed food is, is the, the fibers are not destroyed in, in the food through processing yes. and eating and everything. Um, but yeah, th that's something we spoke about on your show the other day, you know, it's cause uh, obviously Kyle has his background in, in, um, in, uh, in nutrition. And then I have this background in, in understanding early humans. And it's, it's like, I'm really glad you said this because this is a great, great stopping point of my last yeah. point, which I believe is is maybe more helpful than other things as far as like directly into people's lives. Is that like what I was just talking about here is this situation where this article is showing and they're like, oh, look, this was a great leader. She was the she was the big leader. She was like the queen. But at this time in history, man, I mean, it's contextual. People have different roles and they're not viewed as greater than another one in a lot of ways. There, There is a it's not a vertical hierarchy. It is a hierarchy where it's parallel. There are certain people that have certain roles. Other people have other roles and they're both important. When you look at hunter gatherers, the idea that the women were not providing as much because they were just gathering is insane because the gathering is very important and it's also very dangerous, just like the hunting, like the hunting, the men they're in, this isn't true in all cases. And, you know, other humans were fishing, other humans were doing these other things. But if you're in a hunter gatherer society, in most cases, the men who are physically better for better suited in general for hunting, they would go and hunt. They would go out and they would do the hunts. And they would get the meat, but they're not hunting every day. They're not eating meat every day. But that protein was very necessary for their bodies. They needed to have this protein periodically. Whereas the women, they're going out and they're gathering and they're, they're getting this constant, constant, um, this constant just flow of food in, of different types of food. They know what's poisonous. They know what's not poisonous. They know what to get at certain types of years. 
they they know there's probably someone who's this, whose specific role is it in the society to understand the medicinal properties of of herbs. Everybody's doing their part, and certain people's parts are not necessarily better than others. So it doesn't make any sense to me that hunting, the, the idea that hunting is somehow more important than gathering and like it should be a shame that women are considered the ones that are gathering is a fundamental misunderstanding of the situation because they're both, they're both very important. They're different, but they're both very important and neither one could exist without the other. It doesn't have to be this vertical hierarchy. They're both equally important. But our society just creates this situation where it's a one track and you have to you have to fit into the mold of the society and you just don't. And, and that mold for society, I mean, you could say it's for a straight white man, but it's even like it's even more than that, because I'm a straight white man and you're a straight white man. And yet we don't really fit in in like mainstream, like neoliberal city, like ruling class culture. We would not fit in there at all. The vast majority of um, of straight white men would not fit in in that society. It's a subsection. And I think that's what people forget. Um, and that's why I think it's better for everybody. It's better for it's better for white people, black people, men, women. It's better for everybody that we just have in society a understanding of different value systems rather than some things being just better than others. I just don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's human. And I don't think it's respectful of of truly the human diversity that I love so much. Um, so I'm going to end it there. I'm just going to answer Craig's question. And if anyone else has a question, please feel free to ask me or Kyle. Um, remember to, to, uh, check out Kyle's podcast. I will link it below and, um, jump on the discord, please. Uh, which I will also link below and, uh, live show every Thursday at 8 PM. That's when this is being recorded right now. Um, and yeah, Kyle, you got anything before I take Kyle's, uh, Craig's question? Uh, no, man, I just appreciate you having me on. It's a really, really cool conversation and, uh, had a lot more to say on these stories than I thought I would, but, uh, yeah, man, I'm glad that you could have me on. And, uh, like he said, you could, uh, check out my podcast and links below in Liberty and Health, The Common Crown. It's where you can find me, Kyle Matovic, K-Y-L-E-M-A-T-O-V-C-I-K on Twitter and, uh, Facebook and all that good stuff. And, uh, yeah, man, it was a uh, good time. Okay. And I, actually, we're not really done yet because I'm going to answer this question. And this is a question that yeah. I love. Um, mm -hmm. If you could go back to any place in time in history, where would you go? Uh, Craig asked that. And for me, I mean, it, it kind of comes down to like, can you fit in with it? Like, uh, are you able to like, like, do you understand the social customs at the time and up to like not get killed? Do you speak the language? Um, But like, I would love to go back to... Colonial New England, probably 1600s, uh, you know, probably die, probably get killed as a witch. But if I if I know how to fit in, I know the culture, I would love to go back to 1600s, um, 1600s New England or maybe 1700s New England. We'll say like, you know, time of the revolution in New England. Um, as long as I don't get killed, uh, that'd be pretty sweet. And then maybe. No, this is a great question. Maybe some of that pirate shit down in the Caribbean. That would be cool to see. Probably gnarly, but like, that'd be cool. One of the, one of the free cities down in Nassau or something. Yeah. What about you, Kyle? Um, you got one. You're probably not as big into history yeah, as I am, but that's all right. No, I'm not quite as much of a history buff, but I would kind of like to go back to like the sixties 
and maybe even the 70s here in the United States, just kind of see like the muscle car era oh, and what yeah. that was like to have like all the, you know, the Camaros, the Chevelles, the Corvettes, the Mustangs, the, you know, Super Bs, all that kind of stuff. Just kind of see that in its prime. And like also to think about like all the drive-ins where like, that's not like a thing anymore. Ooh, but you know, to, to be able to go to like a drive-in and just sit down and have like a, a milkshake or something with, you know, your girlfriend dressed completely different, just like in a completely different time. I always thought that'd be kind of cool. Well, um, if you're ever up in Eastern Connecticut, where I live, uh, you're, you're welcome to come to the drive-in movie theater we have over here. Um, when you come up and visit, uh -huh. um, but yeah, that, that's a great answer. I think my other answer would be, I would love to see the Easter rising in, um, in Belfast or D Dublin. I would love to see the Easter rising in Dublin. I'd love to be there, participate in it, participate in it again. If I, if I guaranteed not to die. All right. Later, everyone. Thanks a lot for coming. I'm going to end the stream here.